back let's talk about something that i think we talked about in our very first appearance on kdvs that was when dr andy jones uh, relinquished 45 minutes of his excellent program dr andy's poetry and technology hour that was pushing i think 10 years ago now mr mcmillan good god it may be 10 years ago next week at any rate we did a little commentary at that point on the dsm4 the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Well, the DSM-5 is coming out now, and this is causing some controversy. Quite a bit of controversy, actually. We need to talk about that. Uh, excellent article in the May 19th issue of New Scientist magazine. couple pieces, actually. One by uh, Peter Aldhaus and the other by James Davies covered the meeting in Philadelphia that took place for the APA, their, their annual meeting. And of course, topic A was the new DSM-5 soon to be in stores near you. The piece by uh, James Davies noted that there were hundreds of protesters at the meeting, including former psychiatric patients, academics, and doctors. They were all there to try and lobby for their cause, but uh, the demonstrators that uh, this piece focuses on were the ones who were protesting what they say psychiatry is perpetrating in the name of healing. One concern was that while psychiatric medications are more widely prescribed than almost any drugs in history, they often don't work well and have debilitating side effects. And while psychiatry professes to respect human rights, they regularly treat people against their will. Lastly, psychiatry keeps expanding its list of disorders without solid scientific justification. Ten years ago, we were poking fun at the dsm 4 and how things like believing you were captured by space aliens and given medical exams didn't qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis, but that you could put in a billing code for coffee nerves and get reimbursed. Note at the time that, well... <laughs> coffee drinkers, nuts. People who believe they were abducted by space aliens, apparently sane. At the heart of the controversy here is a number of rewrites that are apparently going to go into the DSM-5 that uh, people are, well, they're just, they're just disturbed about it. Alan Francis, who apparently headed the last major rewrite of the manual, that the DSM-4, fears that the revised version is going to undermine the profession's credibility. And we'll just pause briefly so you can fill in your own joke here. To which I would add that I do sympathize with my colleagues in psychiatry. It is a difficult thing. Mental illness is a real thing and it has to be dealt with. Unfortunately, a lot of our theories, such as they are, uh, you know, Freudian type charlatanism, and a lot of other, you know, kookiness out there in the grand field of psychiatry. Well, it, it just shows that we have a long way to go in this area. Noted Alan Francis, what concerns me most is that the publication of the DSM-5 will dramatically expand the realm of psychiatry 
and narrow the realm of normality. Noted the piece among the revisions he believes will be most damaging are generalized anxiety disorder, which threatens to turn the pains and disappointments of everyday life into mental illness, while, quote, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, unquote, will see children's temper tantrums become symptoms of a disorder. One protester at the event, described as Harvard graduate and writer Laura Delano, started taking psychiatric medications at the age of 14 after a diagnosis of bipolar disease. She felt this worsened her state until 2004 when she attempted suicide. It was only that she had rejected her treatment and her identity as a psychiatric patient, she says, that things began to get better. The piece said that talking to psychiatrists as they filed past the protesters, uh, well, there was quite a bit of sympathy. Noted one, these voices have to be heard. We are seeing a manifestation of some legitimate concerns. Another was as nearly as militant as the protesters. Psychiatrists usually take 15 minutes to give a diagnosis, so we shouldn't be surprised if we're getting it wrong. These 15-minute sessions are a form of malpractice. The APA's response to all this? Many of the proposed changes help to better characterize people currently seeking treatment, but who are not well-defined by dsm 4 It is unfortunate there are instances in which people do not feel they have benefited, but these circumstances cannot discredit the clinical practice of psychiatry or those helped by mental health care. Well, maybe. The larger piece by Peter Aldhouse notes that while some diagnoses have good reliability, others yielded scores which show that, you know, they were little better than chance. In field trials, they used a statistic called CAPA, a measurement of consensus between different doctors assessing the same patient. One, corresponding to perfect diagnostic agreement, and zero, meaning concordance was just due to chance. In January, the leaders of the DSM-5 revision announced that kappa scores as low as 0.2 should be considered acceptable. Peace quoted Dale Jones of the University of Central Florida in Orlando, who's tracking the DSM-5 for the American Counseling Association, saying most researchers agree that 0.2 to 0.4 is really not in the acceptable range. And the piece notes that one proposed diagnosis failed to reach even that standard. Some patients turning up in doctor's offices are both depressed and anxious. So mixed anxiety slash depression was tested as a new category. The kappa for adults was less than 0.01. I think we should pause again for you to fill in your own joke here. In fact, this prompts Mr. McMillan to ask if you put a large number of monkeys in a room with a large number of typewriters, would they be able to type out some of the diagnoses that are going to make it into the DSM-5? I have to say that that's a good question. In fact, a quote from the piece, attenuated psychosis syndrome, meanwhile, was intended to catch young people in the early stages of schizophrenia and also some other psychotic disorders. Field trials gave a kappa of 0.46, But the variability was so large that Dale Riger, APA's head of research, told the meeting that that result was, quote, uninterpretable, unquote. So it appears that both disorders are now headed for DSM-5's appendix. Alan Francis was apparently especially relieved that 
attenuated psychosis syndrome is not going to make the volume. He said it would have exacerbated the already terrible problem of excessive and inappropriate antipsychotic use in kids. Meanwhile, parents of children with autism and related disorders are alarmed by a recent study suggesting that many will lose their diagnosis and with it the extra help they receive in school under a new streamlined category of, of autism spectrum disorder. Daryl Rieger argues that these fears are unfounded since the field trials did not highlight a dramatic drop in the number of people diagnosed. He agreed, however, that the low kappas recorded for major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, 0.32 and 0.2 respectively in adult trials, raise serious questions. The author Peter Althaus notes that if depression and anxiety can't be reliably diagnosed, Many patients will wonder how many more disorders stand on similarly shaky ground. And in a discussion of this same topic on the web by Martha Rosenberg of Dissident Voice, notes that some people are questioning the objectivity of a disorder manual written by those who stand to benefit from an enlarged patient pool and new diseases. Furthering the appearance of self-dealing as the revelation noted Ms. Rosenberg that 57% of the DSM-5's authors have pharma links. Noting that present at this year's meeting were former APA President Alan Schatzberg, MD, and Charles Nemeroff, MD, both investigated by Congress for murky pharma income. Both men are apparently are co-editors of the APA-published Textbook of Psychopharmacology, whose 2009 edition cites the work of Richard Borison, M.D., former psychiatry chief at the Augusta Veterans Affairs Medical Center, who was sentenced to 15 years in prison for a $10 million clinical trial fraud. Also present, S. Charles Schultz, M.D., who was investigated for financial links to AstraZeneca, believed to alter his scientific conclusions. The piece notes that even though Assistant Secretary of Defense Jonathan Woodson sent a memo to all branches of the military in February about the overprescription of antipsychotic medications like Seroquel and Respiradol for PTSD, military figures closely linked to that overprescription were also listed in attendance at the APA meeting. In the discussion thread following a dissonant voice piece, someone noted that it is insurance companies who demand a diagnosis with a number attached before they will cover treatment. Expanding diagnostic categories only helps people qualify for treatment. And uh, there's truth in that. A lot of this nonsense has to do with the fact that you have to have a diagnostic code to get paid. So the uh, American Psychiatric Association looks through every possible thing you could slap a code on and... That's how they bill. At any rate, Mr. Merlin's going to try and dig out uh, that piece we did uh, 10 years ago. I think it aired on Capital Public Radio. In fact, you know, it, it actually got us onto Capital Public Radio and KDVS both. Jeffrey Callison heard it, liked it, and that was the beginning of what I think were 58 or so commentaries, which, which aired on NPR's Morning Edition. You know, I kind of miss doing those. I'll have to talk to Joe Barr. Meaning to have a beer with Joe in the near future and maybe see about putting, putting some of those back on Morning Edition if, if, uh, if all goes well. Now, I do want to point out, if you've never tried it, putting together a nice, tight, 90-second commentary is probably, all things considered, about as tough as it is to put together one of these segments we're doing. And I would add, the pay's not very good either. Of course, we're not in it for the money, <laughs> since this program costs something like ten grand a year to produce, which I'd say is the donation we make. 
to public radio. Today's topic, the Encyclopedia of Insanity, better known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition, a.k.a. dsm 4 This mental health catalog was published by the American Psychiatric Association in 1994. It was reviewed in Harper's Magazine in 1997 by L.J. Davis. I like Davis's review so much, I saved it. To quote Davis, Has there ever been a task more futile than the attempt to encompass in the work of a single lifetime, let alone single work, the whole of human experience? For 5,000 years, poets, playwrights, philosophers, and cranks have pursued this maddeningly elusive goal, and all have failed, sometimes heroically. Not even Shakespeare could manage it. The human condition has remained utterly impervious to solution until now. From the dsm 4 we now know that human life is a form of mental illness. The plot of this book is that everyone is either nuts or going there. And the nicest thing about the book, especially for the APA, is that each disorder, no matter how trivial, is accompanied by a billing code. Frauderism, for example, the irresistible desire to sexually touch and rub against one's fellow passengers on mass transit, is 302.89. Coffee drinking, including coffee nerves, is 305.9. Bad coffee nerves is 292.89. And something that has to do with coffee, but the therapist can't quite put his finger on it, is 292.9. You were evidently out of your mind the last time you had a nightmare, 307.47. Interestingly, nowhere in the dsm 4 is a state of sanity defined or described and a therapist is therefore given no guidance concerning therapy's goal. Per the dsm 4 sanity appears to be the absence of everything within its pages. Though the book provides billing codes, its authors seem to have overlooked a few real moneymakers. The book does not describe the belief in having been abducted by a UFO. Evidently, the person with nightmares or coffee nerves is ready for the booby hatch but a person who claims to have been kidnapped by a flying saucer is perfectly sane. Still, progress is being made. We used to be told that women experienced penis envy and that schizophrenia was caused by bad parents. Premenstrual syndrome is not listed in the dsm 4 although they were thinking about it up to the point when female psychiatric practitioners rebelled. Hmm. Well, we'll have to see what the APA has in store for us when they come out with the dsm 5 This is Douglas Everett. Let's talk about some other science issues. Piece by Matt Weiser in the Sacramento Bee, May 26th, talking about how the yellow star thistle is spreading all over California, and the thistle control budget is wilting. This is not a new story. Star thistle has had just some sort of renaissance over the past 10 or 15 years. Remember flying back from Europe, about a decade and a half ago, looking down and seeing all these green hillsides in California, well, they were green because they were full of star thistle. It is the plant from hell, being described as California's uh, number one weed. But the piece by Matt Weiser shows that, well, to treat it, they go out and they spray herbicide. And that, you know, I can tell you, is ultimately going to lose the battle. You have to find some biological control for this plant, which is something else that ain't as easy as it sounds. 
In fact, this is something we would call upon uh, the scientists at UC Davis and elsewhere to see if they can't discover some sort of beetle or bug or aphid or something that will attack this plant and get rid of it. Which, as we talked about in this program before, efforts to <laughs> exercise biological controls have often backfired. They brought the cane toad to Australia to take care of the bugs, and pretty soon it became a horrible uh, problem in its own right. Certain islands, they've introduced the mongoose to take care of uh, this or that problem species, and the mongoose itself became a problem. I remember studying this many years ago as an undergraduate uh, here at this institution. They talked about things like how they were able to get rid of cactus, which were quite a nuisance on the Hawaiian Islands, by finding uh, a moth that loved to eat cactus. Luckily, in this case, there, were, there weren't other plants that this cactus-loving bug uh, preferred. So it, it did a pretty good job of wiping out the, uh, the huge stands of cactus, which were overtaking the dry side of uh, several of the islands. But you don't always have a species-specific predator that you can turn loose. And that's the problem. I guess one of the punchlines of this story is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Once you get a, a, a nasty a pest species entrenched, you're stuck. It's worth it to spend some time and energy to make sure it doesn't get here to begin with. And, and we're just not doing enough of that. Speaking of environmental problems, it might be worth a slight detour into a couple pieces. First, Jeff Shester's special to the bee, op-ed piece on uh, uh, March 9th of this year, talking about how uh, drift gill netting is damaging the ecosystems off the California coast, and we need to do something about that. Chester noted that after a series of failed attempts, the federal government had met in Sacramento uh, the week before this piece and moved forward with another attempt to expand drift gill netting and, and pursue a new long-line fishery for swordfish. He notes this effort not only threatens this fishery, but the future of California's marine life. Nowadays, Pacific swordfish are primarily caught off California with drift gill nets, commonly referred to as walls of death. They can be over a mile long, catching many large open ocean swimmers that cross their path, including whales, dolphins, sea turtles, sharks, and other fish. A recent report by the National Marine Fisheries Service estimated that in 2010, the swordfish Drift net fishery killed 49 dolphins and 16 endangered sperm whales. Man, I think it's time to quit ordering up swordfish. And speaking of not ordering up, piece in the Sacramento News Review by Meredith Graham talked about sustainable sushi and kind of some bad news in the Japanese restaurants. Meredith notes in the piece she was sitting in a sushi restaurant uh, noshing on her old standbys, the sashimi lunch plate, and uh, between the usual offerings of maguro, sake, and hamachi, uh, looked at the list of specials, which included Red Snapper. Having just watched End of the Line, the 2007 film about the efforts of overfishing, she knew that Red Snapper was on the no-no list. She then went home and Googled sustainable sushi and found a cool website. It's uh, www.sustainablesushi.net. Also got linked up to the Monterey Bay's Aquarium Seafood Watch website. And they apparently both offer some very good user-friendly interfaces for finding out about uh, popular sushi items. Meredith Graham noted that what she learned was troublesome at best. Muguro, the fleshy red tuna so often served at sushi establishments, is on the avoid list. 
So are hamachi and sake, better known as salmon. Maguro, it turns out, is yellowfin tuna. It's caught on long fishing lines with thousands of hooks that, according to Seafood Watch, also end up hooking other marine animals like turtles and sharks. Peace also notes that some other uh, sushi options that are not, uh, not so sustainable are Thai or red snapper. They're apparently slow-growing, mature late, and many are caught before they've had a chance to reproduce. Taco, or octopus, is on the Monterey uh, Seafood Watch list because... It's been overfished. There's declining populations, and the fishing gear used to catch octopi is destructive to ocean habitats. And unagi, or eel, uh, is apparently mainly, about 90% at least, um, produced in farms mainly in China, Taiwan, and Japan. They note that eel aquaculture tends to be sloppy and has a number of serious problems. I guess it's about time somebody offered up a, uh, a green sushi plate. I hope anyone listening in the restaurant business will take note. We also have to talk more about the efforts of the People's Republic of China to go upstream and basically divert all the water that flows down into India and uh, and Southeast Asia for their own purposes. Very disturbing thing, and um, we don't have time to do it justice on today's program, but uh, we'll get to it. Let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 